Merry Christmas, everyone. Uh, we've got our technical issues worked out on the recording, so hopefully the sound should be a lot better this week. Um, anyway, I hope you are having a great Christmas. And uh, in this in this episode, Joel and I talk about the incarnation, uh, what that means that God became flesh. Now uh, we talk about faith, and we mention a little bit of Kierkegaard in here. Um, all dealing, all really kind of building up the idea that we've been working with for for a long time now, with the idea of faith, of what it means to have value in our perceptions, and so on and so forth. So, uh, have a listen. Also, if you'd like to be a part of Tactical Faith Ministry, whether you want to contribute or you want to be uh, involved in some event, please check out check out our website, tacticalfaith.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Tactical Faith, and you can also look up Wondering Wisdom at Wondering Wisdom with an underscore where the where the A or the O should be in Wondering. Uh, check us out. Uh, we'd love to have you. Uh, anyway, give a listen. Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome back to Wondering Toward Wisdom. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Christmas, about apologetics. Uh, and how philosophy, uh, apologetics, Christmas, how all these uh, sort of interact. Uh, and to do that, uh, I am here and I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And so, Joel, last time we talked about a little bit about science, a little bit about faith, a little bit about the idea of Advent. Um, and that was a, a strange sort of wondering conversation. But today, I think we're going to try to focus in a little bit more. We're going to try to say something specifically about Christmas because it is Christmas time. Um, so, uh, given that the way we talk about Christmas is often, you know, Jesus in the manger, uh, Moses, or Moses and Jerry. That's a uh, that's not right. Uh, Joseph and Mary, and uh, you know, the stable and the so on and so forth, and you know. There's stories of shepherds and whatever. It's all about, in fact, theology doesn't even really come into play a lot of times when we talk about Christmas. It's so much of a of a uh, personal sort of holiday, joyous experience. Uh, why should we allow philosophers to say anything about Christmas? Because they're probably going to break it. And uh, if so, what, what do philosophers, what can a philosopher say about Christmas? That's a great question. Um, you know, some people would expect philosophers to go down the uh, ethics route and talk about, um, you know, not focus on on the the incarnation or the nativity story, and but talk about how how we should approach the Christmas time and what ethics might be involved with the way we interact with others during that time, and we might do that in a future year. Who knows? But. <laughs> Right. This this year we want to focus on the incarnation, and um, to help us understand what's going on with the incarnation, we want to reference a uh, Danish philosopher that we've referenced throughout this, you know, these podcasts, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, and uh, he was a Christian philosopher. We'll dive into his works much more as we keep going, but. Um, in philosophical fragments or philosophical crumbs, depending on how you want to interpret the, the title, he he, uh, he gets into this idea of of how God would relate to humanity, um, and he, he he to do that he tells a story of this king, and there's a king who uh, loves this peasant girl, 
and he wants to win her heart. But he knows that if he, you know, he knows that he could just show up with, you know, tons of gifts and just sweep her off her feet. And she would be blown away by the magnificence of who he was and the gifts he brought. Or he could even just demand that she marry him. And um, he doesn't like either of those options because he want, he doesn't just want her to be his wife. He doesn't just want her to be in his life. He wants her, he wants to win her heart. He wants mm-hmm. to have a genuine relationship with her where she falls in love with who he is. Not the fact that he's the king, not the fact that he has power, not the fact that he has wealth, but because of who he is. And so he comes up with this idea as to how he can win win the heart of this peasant girl. And that's by becoming a peasant himself. The king becomes a peasant in order to win the peasant girl's heart. So the peasant girl knows can can know him and there's no pressure of he's the king and so I need to do it as his loyal subject or um, he could kill me if I do if I don't fall in love with him or there, there's there's no none of that pressure she, but she can come in contact with who he is and he, and Kierkegaard says you know that that would be the way that a that if a god wanted to. Uh, interact with humanity how he would do it um, in in a meaningful, deep relationship. Um, And I think Kierkegaard's showing us that in the incarnation, God wasn't proving his existence. That wasn't his concern. He had bigger goals. He wanted to show us the kind of God that he is. What kind of God is that? Well, we're going to talk about that for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> well, I do. I do want to say one. I want to make one point, and this is this is really uh, opening it up to other possibility things that we can talk about, and we probably can't get to here. But uh, it is. It is. I mean, if you compare that story, the story of the king. Um, and his love for the for the peasant girl and all the different things, all the different ways that, you know, if he came in as king, you know, with all the whatever. In fact, even if he came to to uh, th- there's almost an issue where if the king um, now, hopefully I'm not confusing these two stories. Uh, but if he if she were even to. It, it's dangerous because for her to find out later that he's king would cause her to to go into a situation of of gratitude and, and human, almost humiliation, servile, a servile sort of gratitude mm-hmm. and so that the, the love relationship could never fully develop. It would always be, um, I didn't deserve this. I don't deserve you. I don't, I, you know, and I'm, I'm so much below you, um, which, which rings true in a way. Um, uh, I know maybe nowadays, uh, we're too, uh, egalitarian to talk about Kings being above peasants, but, but the point in, in those in those days, it would have been understood that way. And our relationship with God is clearly that way. And so the love would always be tinged with this sort of regret and so on and so forth. Um, and so there's almost a, a conflict between God 
to, to, to make this in, re, in relation to God, for God to show who he is in such a way that we can have a relationship with him that's a healthy, that's an actual true loving relationship and God proving to everyone that God exists. So, if God, I mean, God could just, and that's what, I mean, you hear that a lot in apologetics. Why doesn't God just split open the sky and, you know, explode his magnificence upon everyone to prove that he's God? I think Kierkegaard's sort of getting it here. And God, did God come among us and show himself? Absolutely. How did he do that? By taking on flesh, becoming a human baby, you know, fully God, fully man, uh, you know, born to, a, I don't know, not, not a magnificent family, not a, not a royal family, um, and starts off as a relatively unknown, unrecognizable boy, you know, baby, boy, man, and then, then into man. And so, uh, what is God trying to show us about himself um, and about how he perceives us in becoming flesh? So let's, let's, maybe we can, we can break this up into a couple, because this says something about God and also says something about us. Yes. Um, so maybe we can, let's start off talking about God, I guess. So what does the incarnation tell us about God? What, what is God showing us about himself, about the triune God in having the son become flesh and dwell among us. He, he's showing us that he wants a, a, a genuine relationship. He wants a relationship of love. He wants, um, you know, we, the, if, if there is a flaw in Kierkegaard's story, it's that we aren't actually peasants, but we're sons and daughters of the king. Um, which we'll talk more when we talk about what does that say about us? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, let's, let's maybe, maybe what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, I'm trying to pick at this idea of God wanting a love and relation, loving relationship with us because everyone, every Christian believes that. Right. But I'm, and I've believed that ever since I was, became a Christian, but I didn't understand it. I don't think I understand it correct. Understood it correctly, and this is the—is it Brennan Manning Ragamuffin Gospel where he says God doesn't just love you; He also likes you. <laughs> I think so. Um, and that's that's one of the things. Like, yeah. uh, you see Christ coming among us, and we can almost get the—I mean, this is sort of this is well, maybe I'll leave that out. We can maybe get to that that issue later. But there's something about well, maybe we can't go to it later. God didn't just didn't just stand above us and love all people. Christ came into a physical location at an historical time and cared, cared for historical people. Right. And, and, and came as a baby. It's not like he, I mean, he, he could have shown up as an adult human and, but that would have, I think defeated part of the purpose. Yeah. A fully formed adult without a belly button. And I think that would have proven something. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but it, it, there's a whole sort of, I mean, the incarnation is, it's a difficult to believe. I think it's difficult for a lot of people to believe. I mean, that's always been, the incarnation was one of the major conflicts in the history of the church, right? In terms of how do we interpret 
God becoming flesh. Um, but it's, it's, it's incredible in the, in the full sense that it's difficult for a lot of people to believe, but it's also incredible in the sense that, I mean, God took on human flesh and lived the life of a man from, from the unborn to the, to death and then to resurrection and, and did that in a, in a particular location at a particular time. So those of us in the West, we, we tend to see the role of the incarnation as, well, Jesus had to be born and live as a human so he could die and rise again. Yeah. What, what God didn't take on himself, the classic view of salvation, what, what God did not take on is not saved. Right. So if God doesn't take on the flesh, the full, the full humanity, really, the full humanity, then full humanity can't be saved, which and is good. That's, that seems true. Yes. But our not friends saved. in the East, for them, I got to be careful because I don't want to put too many words in their mouth. But <laughs> whereas in the West, we tend to, to focus on Good Friday and Easter, in the East – there's a real focus on the incarnation and in the East, they, they see the incarnation as kind of the, the, um, the big blow that God struck against Satan. Um, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't as much on the cross as it was in the incarnation itself. What? Well, okay. Maybe you can, you can flesh that out a little bit. So the, the idea that that God would remove the inequality and become like those that he he created in his image. Um, Philippians two, man. I mean, it's it's right. It's written yeah. all over there, right? Like the kenosis, where uh, he took the very nature of a servant, right? Um, yeah. And lowered himself to the lowest point, and that is the you know the death of a criminal, the the ignoble death of a criminal. I mean, he 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 didn't you know he, he didn't put himself in the limelight. He you know, I've I've heard all kinds of speculation, um, you know, of how many people might have met Jesus in his lifetime, and um, you know, given that he never really left. Israel or, you know, right around it, I guess he went into Samaria, but mm -hmm. that, that area, I mean, he, he wasn't the one who spread his message to Rome. He wasn't the one who spread his message to the ends of the earth. He came to enter into relationships with people and to be one of us, to be human. Um, I think sometimes we, we like to, to, to think of, Jesus kind of being like the superhero where the he's got the human flesh as kind of his his civilian costume, but really underneath it, he's just God waiting to burst out when it's yeah, if he takes off his glasses and goes into a phone booth. Watch out. <laughs> yeah, I mean it seems like I mean if and if God had had come down in glory and so on, so he should have landed in Rome, fully formed human, you know stomped Caesar under his feet, you know, Augustus, or, you know, if he came later, uh, maybe Nero would be a good one to stomp under his feet. And, uh, you know, I don't know, had magical angel trumpets going off left and right. Uh, 
Um, that would have been the way that that God would have come. But he, he again, he comes to this backwater place. And, That's always and, been a backwater yeah. place. And and you know, if if the goal was the crucifixion and resurrection all along, why not come as a fully formed human? And you know, what was it about not just his ministry, but his mm-hmm. life growing up? That's that's significant because I I don't think I don't think it, it, it's it's insignificant. But I think so many of our I mean we don't we know very little about his life pre thirty ish years old, yeah. um, and so we but even then we still want to we we still always I shouldn't say we. My experience has been that there's this this underlying urge to get us to Good Friday, to give it us to Easter, mm-hmm. that we never that we don't focus on what did it mean for Jesus to be human. Yeah, and even even those times when Jesus is human, what we do is we take his we take it as a time where he had the opportunity to teach ethical truths. So he's born flesh because he needs to do that to save us. Uh, he needs to do that to be able to get to Good Friday. We're not sure what's going on in those pre-30 years, but if you read the Gospel of Thomas, you get some weird accounts. That's a Gnostic Gospel, and it's complete heresy. So anyway, in case you don't know what the Gospel of Thomas is. Um, uh, if it, uh, And then he, he, you know, he starts his ministry, and he does it as an opportunity to go around and teach ethical truths, one of which is you can't save yourself, and so I need to go die on the cross for you. And you're like, I mean, and I'm not saying all that's false. No. What we're saying is that is that it's it's there's more. It's yeah, and it needs to be if if we can if I can keep using that term. It, there's we're losing all the flesh. This is an emaciated view of the gospel, and it's not that it's false. It's just like what is what is Christ. Uh, what is Christ's life all about? And that starts with his being born. What is going? Why does it matter that God took flesh? What does that tell us about how God views us? So maybe we can shift here a little bit because this relates. What does that say about God's perspective on the human life? So the way we normally think about things and the way we the way we normally talk about God, even in apologetics, is God is is out in God's realm of whatever that is, up there somewhere. Um spiritual realm. And the truths about God are eternal truths, unchanging. The truths of our relationship with God are are eternal and, and unchanging. The nature of salvation and the in the in the really the way everything it's like the world of time and space and physical stuff is really sort of an illusion. It's it's it doesn't have any it doesn't really matter because the truth is eternal and the way things are is eternal. Like there's, there's nothing that ever changes. And so, uh, do, do you sort of understand what I'm saying? Like yeah. two plus two equals four. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if, if Hitler had won world war two, two plus two would still equal four. And that's sort of like, you know, the way God relates to humanity and and what humans are and what's going on in history, it all, or that doesn't really matter. The truth stays. Or, I mean, how God relates to humanity stays as everything stays the same. Jesus becoming flesh doesn't really doesn't really change anything. Um, and I, that's sort of a different topic. But yeah. what does this say then about God's view of humanity, of history, of the world? Tell us everything. Everything. 
Um, well, one thing I think it tells us that pushes back on, on some of our um, sensibilities is that being human is a good thing. If is God, what? That being human is a good thing. If, okay. if God became human, then humanity is a good thing. If God took on flesh, then flesh is a good thing. It's not like God, uh, you know, put on this ickiness um, in becoming right. like, you know, becoming in the incarnation. It, he took on flesh and, and that was good. That yeah. our bodies are good things. That there is something good about the way humanity is designed the way that humanity functions the the and and not just as adults but the the whole process the the from conception through through death that there is and and resurrection there is a goodness in that okay it, so this and, and if there's not a goodness in our flesh then Jesus was in fact sinful if flesh is because sinful, he took on flesh yes right and so but does it that doesn't mean that we're good in the sense of we are without sin. Right. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. Right. Uh, it, but it means that, uh, or at least at the very least, this is. it means that we are not divided into a good part and a bad part. Our good part is our spirit and our bad part is our flesh. That's false. That's not that's Christian. Yeah. That's, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yes, the normal interpretation of Plato, that's the case. Um, it might be totally, I, I'm not sure. But that's sort of a not that's the Gnostic Christianity that kept infecting that we've that we fought after for years, partly because when when Paul talks about the sinful nature, the actual Greek word is sarks, it's flesh. And so um, we're like, well, what is does that mean our physical bodies are bad? Well, no, if you read more closely, you realize that that what's actually going on there is different uh, than than the Gnosticism. But it feels like and I mean, it feels like. When we sit down and we do mathematics, everything seems pure and clean. But when I go to the bathroom, it's different, right? I mean, everything's gross and smelly. And I mean, I don't want to get into detail, but that's kind of how you know when when we when we our bodies are are messy. They're full of passions that that draw us away from the from the pure desires that we have because I desire to do to do good, but my body keeps telling me to do otherwise, and so my mind wants what is good. My body wants what is bad, therefore the body's bad. Jesus becomes flesh, and we're like, well, that doesn't work. We can't say the body's bad. Otherwise, Jesus' body is bad. And if right. Jesus' body is bad, Jesus can't be without sin, and now we're in trouble. Uh, so that is an important thing. And that that's that actually has dramatic impacts. The recognition that one's body isn't bad. Can, can you think of some application? Like, I think this is something, I think Gnosticism is the perennial struggle of the church. The hatred of the body is, maybe it's not the struggle, but it's something that will never leave us alone until Christ comes back and slaps us on the face. That the body is the bad thing. I, I, feel, like, I feel like in our society, and even in the church, we have a, we have a pendulum swinging problem with the body. Mm -hmm. We obsess about the body. We hate the body. We, I mean, it's an obsession, but we, we love it. We surrender to everything that the body wants. Mm -hmm. And then we feel like crap and we try to, you know, martyr ourselves and we do whatever we can to hate the body. We're, we're always going back and forth because we can't get the right view of the body. I don't know if we can go into the full details of that, but what Christ said is, 
or what the incarnation tells us is that, the, is that the body is not is not bad, and we have to understand properly what the goodness of the body is and how to live properly in relationship to it. Yeah, which means things that destroy the body are bad. Yes. Um, and so, if you want to know why drunken by why alcoholism is bad, well, that's why. Yeah, it's not good for you. And it also messes with your passions and everything else, but that's a side thing. Um, that's not a side thing, but when we're talking about the body, it is. So, um, okay, what else do we have? What else does the incarnate, the fact that God became flesh, what else does it tell us about us? Do you have anything else? Uh, well, that what I alluded to earlier that, you know, the flaw in Kierkegaard's story. We aren't peasants that God is coming to get. We are, we are sons and daughters of the King, and so, but it's like we are unaware of that. And so, in in a sense, by by becoming human and showing us what it means to be human, Jesus is reminding us that who we really are, what our humanity really is meant to be. Right. Um, I mean, th there, there can be some who disagree with this a little bit. Um, yes. Uh, in fact, we just covered this in, in that we are all created by God. Uh, but if you look at John 1, uh, particularly 1.12, uh, to all who did receive him, uh, he gave them the power to become sons of God or be called the sons of God, the right to be called sons of God. Um, at, at the is, very least. At the very least, we're all image bearers of the king. Yes. Which is, yeah, and I don't. I mean, I don't want to debate. I mean, a lot of that has to do with what we mean by sons of God and so on and so forth. Right. Um, but yeah, God, Genesis one, God created us to be, uh, you know, little kings over the earth, um, yes. vassal kings, you might say. Um, a lot of people see uh, some people see Genesis one to three as a suzerain vassal treaty, right? Um, suzerain being the great king, like the emperor, and vassal kings being the smaller kings of the different things. God made us uh, made us vassal kings over over the earth. We we messed that up. Um, well, Adam and Eve did. If I would have been there, I wouldn't have. But, uh, <laughs> He's going to edit uh, that. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah. So one of the th one of the things here is that. Um, and maybe this, and this gets a little bit orthodox too, is that the flesh can be a part of the flesh can be united with God. Right. Um, we do not. And so, and maybe this is, this is sort of a different angle on this and I, I I'm not going to get too, too metaphysical here, but, um, one of the things that we, we, and I don't want to push my, my own tradition too much. Uh, but one of the things that we we tend to think is that the worship, the worship of God is something takes place that takes place in in the spirit and in truth, right? So non physical, non physical. I think the spirit refers to the Holy Spirit, but uh, maybe I have to get in some sort of debate there. But uh, but I mean, arguably, when we say in spirit and in truth, spirit means could mean since the spirit's main purpose is to join the body together, the body of Christ together, the spirit means in church together sort of yeah united together in community right not necessarily in a physical building um 
but nevertheless, uh, we, we normally think of that in terms of, you know, I can, I can worship God however I want, wherever I want in any situation that I want. But the thing is the body is a part of the worship and our, and our bodies play, play a role in that. And the body, the body, the, the, the incarnation, sho- incarnation shows us that the body is not, I don't want to say it. When I, when, I don't want to say necessarily united with God because it sounds like I'm doing some sort of uh, Hindu thing or something. But what I mean is something like the body can can be used to come close to God. Maybe would be the way because because it's not like it's not like God and the flesh are are opposite are are uh, inherent enemies. Yeah, they're not they're not enemies to one another. God, God, I mean, and all things who are made by God. This should be obvious from Genesis one, but. Uh, but we're, it's not like you get close to God with your flesh and, and the flesh gets repelled or God gets repelled. And so things like the physical parts of worship are not, they're not merely symbols to help the mind, you might say. Right. Now, I know that there's, I'm going to probably get in some tradition elements here, but it could be that the incarnation suggests that at the very least, things like getting on your knees does in fact re- affect the way that you relate to God. The body is a, is a part of it. It could also mean, and this this I'll just leave open. It could also mean that things like communion, the bread and the wine, uh, other elements that we consider normally liturgical might, in fact, have more significance than what we think. In fact, I heard one guy one guy say, um, you know, God became flesh and dwelt dwelt among us. Why would you think that He can't enter into the bread and the wine or the grape juice or whatever you have? At communion. Now, I'm not going to argue for that point, but what he's kind of saying is like, look, God condes- God condescends to you all the time. Um, and don't take that negatively. I mean, it's the king coming down to us. Or, or the parent talking to the, the young child. Yeah. Yeah. So why would you think that you have to do some sort of fancy stuff in church in order to rise your mind up to God? Maybe he just meets you in, in eating. Amen. You know? And you could take that. Yeah, I'm like, I, I'll worship God that way all day, uh, uh, and then I regret it all night. But uh, so it, it opens up a lot of possibilities. The fact that God that that God came so low for us, um, and by low we don't necessarily mean we don't mean evil. I mean he's that the Creator took on created being. That the that the one who is uh, at least not bound by the by the limits of creation took on the bound the bounds the finiteness of creation is is incredible and it shows that the finiteness of creation is not evil. Right. Uh, the primarily di- primary difference is that it's created and finite, not that it's evil. Uh, and so this is. This is some of what the incarnation tells us about us and some of what it tells us about God's relationship to us. Uh, it, it tells us that we, we are worth having a relationship with that, um, that it's, it's to God. It, I do, you always have to be careful when you use language about God needing something or God wanting <laughs> something. Um, right. But, I'm I'm going to use the language and and um, 
accept it in the spirit that it's given. Um, <laughs> but you know, God God sees humanity as as beings that are worth being in relationship, such that he becomes. He takes on the created. He takes on the finite. He he traverses the the otherness and removes the otherness that prevents the relationship mm-hmm. from being able to fully happen. Um, you know, in, in a way that 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 it, it appears wasn't even the case in the garden with Adam and Eve uh, when they walked with God in, in in the coolness of the day. That it seems like. Even that there is still a an otherness in that relationship that is removed through the incarnation. Yeah, you don't remove otherness any more than becoming that. Yeah, like that's as that's as non other as you can get. Yeah. Um. Uh. Yeah, and so this and this also brings maybe may, this might be one of the, the the last elements that that I think is maybe we can hit hit on today, and that is that. God wants to, we're looking for the glory of God to fill the earth, not to destroy it and go elsewhere. Right. And so, and you know, that's, that's a, that's a reference to, to Habakkuk. Um, but it's, when you look at, at uh, the, the average view, I think a lot of the view of, of Christians is that, um, you know, is that the the goal is to survive this world, which is the testing ground, and then when this, you know, if you've passed the test, then you die, and eventually the whole earth will be destroyed, you know, burned up in the in the flames. Which we have to talk about the the hermeneutics of understanding that because we're also passing through flame. Um, in fact, we're baptized with fire, but that doesn't mean we're going to be de- destroyed. Uh, it means we're going to be purified, right? Um, Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, uh, but the idea is that creation is from God, and and God wants to bring about, uh, wants to bring about peace to the peace and wholeness to that, and we get that right with the with the message to the shepherds, peace on earth, right? We always hear peace on earth, peace on earth uh, to those on whom His favor rests, and so uh, Christ takes on flesh and shows that God can can fill the physical with His glory. And I, I think that also is, you know, a good reminder that peace is not just the absence of conflict. It is, it is a fullness of life, and it's a fullness of life that that God wants to bring about, not by forcing it down on us, but by by cultivating that within the lives of of people who who continue to spread that through their through their yeah. lives and community. In the same way Christ did. Yes. Right. And that is through self, self-giving love that overcomes death. That's life, and that's peace. That's the fullness of life. Well, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to end here. This is sort of maybe a bit of a, a lighter note uh, in some respects, but you know, uh, hopefully, it wasn't too theological and philosophical to get us away from the Christmas spirit. Well, um, here's the part of the podcast where we we tell you how to talk about this with your family at Christmas. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> here's how you talk to your stupid uncle about I am that uncle. Uh, so you know, but I I do want to just I want to I want to kind of kind of go back and remind that one of the one of the major elements, and I I I really think this is the case even in apologetics in general, is that people's major issue with with believing in god i think 
a lot of times it has less to do with believing that God exists and more of a particular view of who God is. Right. And that's the, that's the, the strange situation you might say, at least from our perspective, God was in like the King and the peasant girl. Um, uh, God, it seems like God had two choices to prove that he exists or to develop a loving relationship with us. Um, and it may be that God doesn't need to be proven that it doesn't, we don't need to prove that God exists. What we need to do is see that the love of the, of God who became flesh and recognize peace on earth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the self give, look, the one who gives of himself, uh, to overcome death is here among you. And how, what does that look like? It looks like everything that Christ did, right? Everything that Jesus was doing mm-hmm. in his flesh, uh, till death and resurrection, which I'm, again, I'm jumping straight to good Friday and the resurrection, uh, good Friday and, and, and Easter. But, but in all of that, he was healing the sick. He was showing love. He was reaching out to, to the outcasts. Um, he even did some criticizing and some knocking some tables over, um, but in all this, he's showing the, the centrality of self-giving love and the fact that God wants to be among us, uh, that this is who God is, and this is the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. And that all begins, well, Genesis 1. But it really, but things really start taking off in, 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 at Christmas. Right. And, and to tie back to the, the strand that we've been on for the last few podcasts, this is what faith is about. Faith isn't that God exists, but faith is that this is who God is. Mm-hmm. That and in, and what does it mean to live our lives in light of 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 the faith that this is who God is? Well, thank you, uh, and hope you all have a merry Christmas. And uh, I'm Travis. I'm Joel. And remember, it's twelve days of Christmas, not just one. <laughs> Amen.